Thank you for tuning in to another episode of an Open Water Swimmers podcast. You may or may not know that I am endeavouring on my own set of ultramarathon swims this year and next. Clearly, compared to some of my incredible guests over these seasons, these events are relatively piddly. But nonetheless, I'm booked to swim the 65 kilometres around Jersey in September of 2023. And then I have my own English Channel solo attempt in August of 2024. I'm raising money for a charity called Amaze, who help families who have children with disabilities. They're based in Sussex. So if you're enjoying this podcast, please do head to my Just Giving page, which you can find on the blurb of the pod. Or also, if you go to my Instagram handle, OWSwimPod, it's there for you to find. Please donate anything at all. All donations are welcome, no matter how big or small. You can think of it, if you like, as just buying me a coffee. If you want to hear more about my story and why I am raising money for a maze, then check out Intrepid Water and fellow swim podcaster Shannon Keegan and her interview with me back in May of 2022. Thank you. Enjoy the show. I'm Stephen Minutonis, and you are listening to an Open Water Swimmers podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three, season two of an Open Water Swimmers podcast with me, Will Ellis. Of course, please do remember to leave me a rating wherever you get your podcasts from. And remember to follow the social media channels on Instagram and Twitter, which are both at OWSwimPod. Today's episode is with someone who I've referred to as the father of open water swimming. He's written about the sport since the 60s and is one of the most influential people in the world of open water swimming. He founded the World Open Water Swimming Association, also known as WOWSA, the Ocean 7, and is himself a marathon swimmer, water polo player, commentator, race director, coach, and recent winner of the annual SCAR race held in Arizona which we will talk about more in the chat shortly. He really needs no introduction to anyone connected to the sport. It is a total honor and privilege to have on the show, Stephen Munatones. So Stephen Munatones, I am honored to have you here on an Open Water Swimmers podcast. Someone who I, I look at as one of the founding, almost like the founding fathers of our sport. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Excellent. So. Stephen, I'm, I'm going to jump right in with the, with the six questions. So my first question to you, I don't know if any of our swimmers uh, have listened to the podcast that you did on with Shannon on Intrepid Water, which was wonderful. So there may be, well be some crossover. That's absolutely fine. But why do you swim? Obviously, this is an open water swimmers podcast. Not everyone starts in the open water. So it might just be, why did you take up swimming? Why do you continue to swim? And what is it about the water? and that environment of the open water that, that keeps you coming back after all these years? Well, I'm probably one of the uh, minority of, of swimmers who actually learned how to swim in the ocean. Um, when I was quite small, actually very young, uh, weeks old, my parents first took me to a beach, uh, Santa Monica Beach, and uh, that was the closest beach to my uh, hometown in Los Angeles. And I was crawling around the sand at a very young age. And then I learned how to crawl up to my uh, waist. And then uh, I just learned how to swim. I got into the water um, as a competitive swimmer quite early, six years old. I was competing in 25-yard uh, uh, competitions, and I continued. So I think it is just in my DNA. I, I think I'm, I'm, 
I was, you know, weeks old and my parents are taking me to the beach. I'm, I'm comfortable in the sand. I'm comfortable in the, the water. I was born at the end of July. So the first time I was in the water, it was probably August of 1962. So uh, weather was warm uh, and it would just baked into my soul. <laughs> uh, and I've continued enjoying the water uh, every day. Um, I, I, I enjoy it. I look forward to it. Um, uh, the, the rougher it is great. Um, I don't really enjoy cold water, uh, <laughs> although I, I have swum in it. Certainly ice swimming is beyond my capabilities, uh, and interests, but, um, everything about the open water I love. Uh, if I travel anywhere in the world, I'm always peering out the car door or the train door, or the bus, uh, window. And, and uh, wondering how far is that lake? Uh, mm. I wonder where that river goes. Um, can I swim in that sea? So um, the water just just uh, absorbs me in in all my thought processes. That's great. That's nice to hear. I think a lot of people will share that. So that sort of exploratory nature that seems to have fostered in you from a younger age to explore the water, explore the oceans. How did that? start from a young age can you remember your kind of your first open water swim i mean that's actually my next question but i wonder if if there's that connection to the open water that led you to become a sort of a an aquatic explorer would that would that be would that make sense yeah, yeah absolutely i i do remember uh again at santa monica beach once my parents were comfortable with me playing in the sand um, and i do remember the sensation i didn't know how to body surf uh back then and i remember just tumbling and tumbling. And I had this sensation I was falling, hmm. but I was safe. All I had to do was rise up to the top of the of the ocean there. And so hmm. I was wondering, God, if I jumped off of my uh, roof, if I jumped off of a car, I would hurt myself. But here I was in the in the ocean, effectively falling from the surface down when the waves were churning around and, and I was safe. All I had to do was pop up to the surface. So I immediately felt uh, safe and comfortable in the water. And that sensation of sort of not having control to a mm. certain extent, but also having enough control that I am safe was also, uh, you know, that was, that's why I think an adventure in the open water is just, again, baked into my soul. And, and I, and I'd love to, to swim in a new body of water. I love to observe a new body of water. One reason why I write is because I, I literally want to learn about all the different venues, rivers, lakes, oceans, locks around the world and where people swim and how do they do it? How far do they swim? What's the water temperature? What are the conditions, et cetera? And it just fascinates me again, because I was introduced very early on. And, and I, I believe it's uh you know, it, it's one of the few things I can be adventurous in. I'm mm. not going to walk up or hike up uh, Mount Everest. I'm not going to go to the North Pole. Um, uh, I don't live in the 16th century or 17th century, and I can hop on a boat or hop on a, on a, on a horse and explore something that hasn't been explored before. My adventure is literally the open water. And as you know, every time we go in the open water, at least here in Southern California and most oceans and seas around the world, it's a different atmosphere. 
So I can swim in my, the same beach. I live in Huntington Beach in Southern California every single day, and the experience will be different. I'll mm. see some days I'll see uh, lots of dolphins. Another day I won't see any dolphins. One day the surf will be quite large. The other day it will be very tranquil. So I, I don't I don't look at um, the surf uh, webcast before I go to the beach. It's sort of a surprise. It's my little treat to myself. What is the ocean going to present to me today? That's cool. I like that. I always feel with swimming, swimming anywhere, for me, there's, there's, the, there's the control and there's the uncontrollable. And that for me is a huge draw to the open water. And you've just touched on something there for me, that you can control how you react to the environment that the sea has thrown at you, which for me is a kind of, is a mirror to my life that you have, there's this acceptance of what is. And swimming, especially in open water, it seems to be a reflection of that. Is that something you also identify with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, I don't think I ever get scared in the open water. <laughs> wow. um, and but, but I think that's because my first experiences in my life in the ocean, um, I didn't feel scared. So that feeling of being scared, even... The first time I remember I was um, uh, uh, fishing with uh, one of my uncles and he took us night fishing. And I, you know, I said, oh, wow, I, I know this beach. Like, I want to go in the water. It, the, the sun was, was setting, the, the moon was, was rising and, and I wanted to swim in the darkness. I wasn't afraid, mainly because I was familiar with that body of water. Maybe mm. if I was somewhere else, I wouldn't have wanted to venture past the shoreline, mm. but that control that you have to control your safety, to manage your, your environs, but also to sort of go, wow, what if, like, how is it to swim not under sunlight, but under moonlight? Um, and, and again, in that experience, I remember when I, when I was swimming in the water and, and, Fortunately, that time I brought my goggles. Uh, I don't know why I brought my goggles to a to a fishing uh, expedition with my uncle, but <laughs> I did bring my goggles. And that was the first time I saw bioluminescence. Yeah. So again, my first experience in night swimming was the fact that I, I hit the water. And as I was swimming, I could see this blue wave just curling around my arms and forearms. And I found that fascinating. So the, the darkness never, it didn't scare me. Now, again, I, I live in Southern California. Um, I have lived elsewhere, but in Southern California, where I am, uh, the water is, is cool in the winter. It's not cold like Great Britain. Great Britain, I think, is, you know, I know the water can get very cold there and winter swimming and ice swimming is, is really a, becoming quite popular. For me, that's a little intimidating, but again, it gets back to the point that you had mentioned, that you have control in an uncontrollable situation. And in life on dry land, you know, if, if I am in an uncontrollable situation on dry land, that could be a little scary depending on where you are. Now, in the open water, if I'm control, if I feel in control, but the conditions are uncontrollable. That is the epitome of adventure. That's fun. That's enjoyable. <laughs> That's very cool. I really like that. So if you had this sort of this start learning how to swim in the open water, you were then drawn to water polo, uh, which, which I guess the more I 
the more I think about it, it kind of makes sense for open water swimmers and water polo to be to be quite sort of intertwined, given given the ferocity of the sport, right? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, when I, and there are many open water swimmers in, in our sport from Ned Dennison to, to Ross Edgerly and everywhere in between, I think the, the, um, there's a little bit of, now I did competitive swimming and I did, um, water polo and certainly in my high school and uh, university years, I actually did, there would summer times when I would be competing in a 50 meter pool in a swim meet. I would play a water polo game in the afternoon, and then I would also swim in the ocean. So those are three completely different things. The swimming was very controlled. I knew that I would swim the 200-meter butterfly, four laps of a pool in a lane line, and the gun would start. Everything was under control. I knew the water temperature down to the, the 10th degree. Water polo, like open water swimming, there are things I can control. I can swim up and down the pool. I can pass when there needs to be a pass. I can sh I can shoot if, if a shot is open. But I'm also in the water with six teammates playing against, not including the goalie, playing against seven other players. So I'm one out of 14 people in the water. Controlled, what I can do, uncontrollable with everybody else. And so that's sort of, again, uh, sports, whether it's uh, uh, football, basketball, uh, uh, cricket, you name it, you know, there's that, that uncontrollable, unexpected element of sport is obviously inherent in water polo. And that, that just drew me uh, tremendously well, uh, uh, tremendously, and uh, I thrived on it and I enjoyed water polo just as much as I do open water swimming. That's wicked. I love that. It's a sport I haven't played enough of, I think. And it's a, something I wish, you know, in hindsight, I'd, I'd done more of as a teenager. So bringing it back slightly, can you remember your first kind of open water swim? Uh, it might have been when you were a, a teenager. It might have been when you were a bit older. It might have been, you know, something you'd set, you'd, you'd set a goal to do. Um, can you remember your sort of first proper adventurous kind of foray into the open water? Oh, yeah. I, I know exactly where it was. It was in uh, Long Beach, California, not too far away from me. It was in uh, a place we call Naples Island that was actually d designed after uh, Naples in Italy. And um, it was uh, it was it had a long history even back then. I think it, the, the swim started in the uh, about 100 years ago. All we had to do is we swam from the shore to a, a lane, a, a rope about, uh, I would say, 30 to 40 meters off. That's all we had to do. We had just to swim there and it was a blast. I had all these other six-year-olds around me and someone uh, shot the, the starter's pistol and we all ran in and we thrashed, you know, and we hit the, hit the uh, uh, lane and then we got to swim back. And then uh, that same day, we had a uh, father-son, mother-son relay and my parents would... Uh, uh, they would be on the rope and we would, the little kids would swim out, touch their parents. The first race was with my mother. The second race was my father. We touched hands and then your parents swam into shore. So my first experience, this would have been back in 1968, was again, a thoroughly enjoyable experience. I just remember, you know, going to the beach, uh, having this fun. Uh, my mom probably prepared a great meal. I don't remember what it was. 
I was with friends, uh, you know, six years and under, and we were all laughing, running around the beach in our speedos. And in, in that particular race, I know we didn't have goggles. I, why? I don't know, but we just, we just went uh, speedo uh, and, and just went for it. No one wore goggles then. It's, it's looking back at sort of Mark Spitz's Munich races and you realize after watching them a few times, hang on, he's, he's, he, he's not wearing goggles. And you, you yeah. think, God. So he's sort of counting strokes and getting chlorine in his eyes, uh, which to me is, is, is really gnarly. Anyway, I want to ask you, you mentioned, you know, you've got a huge passion for the sport and you, every, every time you talk about the water, I can see the enjoyment running through you. Has there been a time when you have had a swim which you haven't enjoyed? There's been a swim I've been disappointed in myself, and that was in 1984. You remember it. Round the Island Swim in Atlantic City, uh, just south of, of uh, uh, New York City. And it was, a, it was a 23 and a half mile, 38 kilometer swim. And uh, I was expecting to do quite well. Uh, there were a number of very famous swimmers at, in that particular race. Philip Rush, um, the first man to do a three-way English channel, uh, Paul Asmuth, uh, a seven-time world champion, Claudio Plitt, who's done over 250 uh, professional marathon swims, a number of swimmers. And I showed up a few days before the race. Uh, it was summertime, so it was quite warm. Um, I got to the uh, first two days, you know, just loosening up, getting ready. I was very, very uh, confident. And then the evening before the swim, uh, there was a tropical storm. And I figured, okay, this is my element. The, the water is going to be rough. There's going to be lots of wind. There, there might be some rain. Uh, the conditions will be turbulent uh, just up my alley. Well, I didn't know in that part of the world. So that the tropical storm, it actually caused the water, the, the warm water to fall and the upwelling of the cold water. So I get to the start of the race at seven. I'm all prepared. I'm very confident. I, I, I prepared for this. It was my first professional marathon swim. And I touched the water and I was shocked. I didn't know. I couldn't even say it was cold. It was, it was an expectation that I never dreamed possible. And it was freezing cold. And that they say before the, they, I know when I was there the first two days, the water is about 20 degrees Celsius. Uh, when I got uh, 13 degrees Celsius, more or less. Um, and we started off, uh, it's an island. So half of the race is in the ocean and the other half is in the back bay. In the back bay, there was no upwelling or there was very little upwelling of the cold water. So I knew. I had to make the first half of the swim. If I could last in the first half of the swim, I could get to the warmer bay water and I could make the rest of the race. The distance was not an issue. It was just getting through that cold water. And what happened was um, I started off very, very fast. I was, I was very confident, uh, even though I had all of these great swimmers around me. And gradually my peripheral vision just went closer and or more narrow and more narrow. Eventually I was, I was pulled out. Um, I was um, sent to the hospital and I don't remember the exact number of swimmers who were in that race. Uh, I'll call it 30 ish. And there were six finishers and they were the toughest of the tough Philip Rush, Claudio Plitt, 
uh, of Argentina, uh, Monique Walshut of the Netherlands, all, all the greats who are currently in the International Marathon Swimming Hall of Fame. And I was in the hospital um, and I, they put me in a tub of uh, warm water. And I was so embarrassed because uh, the attending physician came with a bunch of interns and he was explaining hypothermia and how to treat hypothermia. It was emergency room doctor who had a bunch of young doctors around him and I was their case study. This is what happens when a swimmer is hypothermic and this is how you treat them. I just wanted to get in there. I just wanted to finish the race, but here I was as a case study for young doctors. And that was that was really disappointing to me. Oh, got me but dropping 7 degrees from okay. 20 to 13. That's insane. I yes, mean, you can train you you can you can you can train for a roundabout temperature, but I challenge anyone to to train unless they're, as you say, those hardened pros who are used to swimming in you know twelve thirteen degree water. It, that that's impossible to train for. Yes, uh, it, it was it was a shock to my system. I didn't make it. Uh, afterwards, I was, you know, I was fairly close to making the turn into the warm bay water, um, but I was still, you know. Um, let's say I had made that turn. My body was uh, hyperthermic. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared. And, um, and so I, I just reflected upon that. And, you know, I'd known that, you know, the open water, you have to expect the unexpected. And this was totally the unexpected. Mm. And I hadn't prepared for this kind of temperature. Mm. And it was a, it was a great learning experience. Mm. So fast, let's, let's fast forward to SCAR. And yeah. I had no idea how cold the Arizona lakes are. <laughs> My friend Tim, who is a triple crown swimmer, who I interviewed on this podcast in season one, he's really invested in at some point in the next sort of five years or so. He, you know, he wants to do SCAR and he's, you know, he's sort of nudging it my way. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe, maybe. And then I listened to you and I realized how cold it was. And I was, and I mean, you smashed it. It was an amazing uh, listening to you speak about it. Um, but could you, could you just talk us through that? Uh, and I, I think a lot of our, the UK listeners won't know what SCAR is. So if you, if you, could, if you could tell us in your, in your own words what SCAR is um, and sort of talk, talk through your experience. So SCAR is a four-day, four-stage swim race in Arizona near Phoenix. That's the largest uh, uh, city close by. And it's in a very, very remote, rugged area. Um, if, you, if you can think of the American desert with all of these cacti and, and everything that's in a, in, a, in a desert, that's what we have. Now, there are four lakes or four reservoirs, and you swim from one point to the end, and the next day you go from that point to the end, and you do that four consecutive days. Uh, now, these are dams, so there, there's large dams at the start. And then you swim to the, the end of the dam. Well, in the start of the dam, the, the water can be fall, flowing out. And what it does is it churns the water in and it brings the cold water up. And I remember um, uh, you know, people like Sarah Thomas and all these famous cold water swimmers are there. And they would, they would just advise me, Steve, all you do is you have to you have to swim for, let's say, a mile or two. Swim for a half an hour, an hour, and, and the water will eventually get warmer. And it did. Um, but 
this was a learning experience I took from uh, Atlantic City, circa 1984, transplanted it over to uh, Arizona, the Arizona desert in 2022. So I, I can't do the math very quickly, but that's a, that's a lot of years in between. And I just said to myself, I don't want to be in a hospital. I don't want to be sitting on a shore regretting that I didn't give it my all. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I would ask people like, what do you do? And people would give me all kinds of advice. It was great advice, all of it very um, worthwhile. And, and when I would jump off the boat, um, and so what you do is you each, each day, um, the group of swimmers gathers, um, Kent Nicholas, one of the world's greatest, um, uh, race directors, uh, takes the, the swimmers, puts them in three groups. The fastest, uh, fastest group goes last and the slowest group of swimmers goes first. And the idea is that everybody will will finish more or less the same um and it and even though it is quote a race it's really a preparation for the summer season and the north american summer season so in other words um it's in april which is quite early uh which means a lot of people don't have a lot of uh, uh open water yardage uh training under their built in in april and and kent created this event in order to prepare himself to swim channels in the summertime and so you have a lot of people who are triple crowners you have people who are very accomplished channel swimmers but maybe they want to do the north channel or maybe they want to do a double of catalina whatever they want to do they use scar as a sort of a, a proving ground how where am i now in april because my main event is in, let's say, English Channel in uh, July. So it's a, good, it's a good point for swimmers to challenge themselves. Four days. So the first day is 14 kilometers. The second day is 13 kilometers. The third day is 27 kilometers. And the last day is 10 kilometers. Mm. A total of 66 kilometers. Um, uh, each swim in itself is not particularly difficult, although... When the winds come up, you're 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 really fighting the wind and the and the turbulence against you. But the cumulative stress of four straight days really is is a challenge. And it isn't like you just take off your suit, jump in the water, and go. These are very remote locations. So I remember between day two and day three, um, I didn't exactly know where to go. And again, this isn't the big city. This isn't London. This isn't Los Angeles. My dinner was in a gasoline stand. And I think I had a hot dog and a muffin. Um, and that was my pre-race dinner uh, because it was either a, a, a hot dog or a, a, a sad hamburger. Um, and so it really is an adventure. It's beautiful location. Um, when you're swimming, you see the sheer walls of the of the canyon uh, above you, uh, there's cactus all around. Um, you know, there's uh, it, it's very remote, and and but you're you're guided, you're escorted by uh, your kayaker. Uh, Kent provides the kayaks, and um, you start in the morning and you finish in the afternoon. You move on to the next day, and it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. Oh, it sounds it sounds absolutely amazing, and one day it's it's perhaps something I'll. I'll find the time and resources to do. 
Yeah, Stephen, that's so inspiring um, because you you were the overall winner. You won you won the buckle, uh, which is awarded to the uh, to the winner of Scar, as I understand it. Um, and of course, this this comes not not too long after after you you know you you overcame a heart attack, which is extraordinary. Yes. So um, so I did have a heart attack in 2016, and uh, I, you know I was I was in a coma, and it was it was uh, you know touch and go. Um, I remember the, um, or later my wife told me that the, um, cardiologist who, who put a, the stent in my heart, uh, told her, you know, I'm going to have to basically, um, freeze me, uh, to see what, what he can salvage and that, uh, they will probably be severe, uh, neurological damage. And my wife had to understand that that was a, that was a risk. And she said, Oh, sure. I mean, you know, she, she had confidence and she had hope that I would come out. Okay. And I, you know, several days later I came out of it and, um, I was quite disappointed in myself. Um, I, I, I was just devastated how I put my family through such stress. Um, and I, I, actually asked the physician, I said, you know, I got to get out of here as quickly as possible because I, I realized that I had a second chance in life and uh, everything about how I survived was literally the perfect storm. Um, I had a heart attack at my home uh, while my children and wife were at home. I mean, I could have been in a hotel room. I could have been traveling. I could have been walking on the beach. Um, I could have been at home by myself. But my son was there. Uh, my wife was here. My daughters were here. So my son saved me literally. Uh, he gave me CPR um, for for several minutes at least. Um, everybody's in a panic. Uh, people are crying. People are yelling. And he's calmly as a seventeen year old boy, just pressing up and down on my my chest. The uh, paramedics came. I was taken by ambulance uh, to the local hospital. Again, very touch and go. Um, my age at the time, let's see, I was 54. Um, uh, I, I was, other than my heart, I was uh, quite healthy. Uh, there was, a, I'm not a smoker, uh, but the problem was I had just had too much what they call low-grade inflammation, a low-grade stress, which leads to inflammation of one of the arteries. Um, so, you know, I, my heart stopped. I had a clot. Uh, they put in a stent. And they put me under in this cold, they, they freeze you basically. And, and uh, you come to, and, uh, the physician again had told my wife that, you know, he probably me would have severe neurological damage and, you know, she had to be prepared for that. So I opened my eyes after several days and, and I looked around the room and I saw my mother, I saw my uh, wife, they were the only two people in the room at the time. And, uh, they were instructed by the physician that, if I did wake up, make sure to hit the call button as soon as possible. So they're hitting the call button and I see my wife, I see my mother. And the first thought I thought was, oh no, something happened to my father. I knew I was in hospital. Um, I was there, then something must have happened to my father. Um, I didn't realize what had happened was to me. I had all these tubes in, the nurse comes and I'm trying to get up to go to the bathroom and she's holding me down saying you don't move you just had a heart attack and I looked at her like you know you got to be crazy and uh, later 
the cardiologist comes in Rome and explains everything to me. And, and I looked at him saying, well, uh, I understand what you said. Okay, if I did have a heart attack, how soon can I get out of this room? I need to get out of this hospital because I have this second chance in life and I need to get on with my life. Um, and he said, nope, you're not, you're not going anywhere anytime soon. You gotta, you gotta, we gotta get you well. And, uh, but again, the, the point was, as soon as I woke up, as soon as I understood that I did have a heart attack, I did realize I had a second chance in life that I couldn't waste any more time uh, sitting around in a hospital room. I had to go out and live the rest of my life as the best I can. I can. Wow. Gosh, what a, what an amazing, uh, what an amazing sort of, sort of take instantly to, yeah. uh, to, to, to have that, the ability to do that. Um, that's quite inspiring. And then of course, uh, to then what, what was it, that was 2016, as I understand it. So, uh, you know, six years later to, to tackle scar and absolutely crush it in the way you did, um, is, is, is incredible. And you were talking about your training for scar and some of the, you know, some of the times you were, you know, you were, you were holding and challenging yourself, you know, day by day, just getting that little bit faster. I mean, it was, it's incredible to listen to. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, again, first time I had a heart attack, first time I was in the hospital and then intensive care. And, and of course I had all these medical professionals, uh, telling me what I should do and what happened and how I should proceed. And so I, I went through cardiac rehab. Um, and again, I'm not denigrating standard American healthcare, but it wasn't for me. I knew that I could help my body best by swimming. Um, cardiologists told me, don't swim. You can't swim for at least a year. And I, my response was, I'm more comfortable in the water rehabilitating my body, rehabilitating my heart because I can control my heart rate in the water very easily. You know, I can swim very comfortably and my heart rate will be very, very close to my um, natural heart rate. Uh, I can kick a little more and my heart rate will increase. I can move my arms a little bit faster, my heart rate will increase. So I took the knowledge that I had of my own physiology and when the doctor said, well, you know, we need to get you stronger. We need to get your, your arteries there. You need to sleep more, et cetera, et cetera. I just applied what I knew through a lifetime of swimming into cardiac rehab. And with that cardiac rehab, I knew I was getting stronger and stronger. And I thought, gee, you know, um, how far can I take this? Now, of course, COVID hits pandemic strikes, pools are closed, and the only place I could now swim, continue this cardiac rehab, is in the ocean. Um, and I, you know, re renewed my love of the ocean. And then I was thinking, gee, you know, uh, since I'm training so much in the ocean, I might as well as do some kind of race. <laughs> and uh, so I just Googled open water race and scar popped up and I go, okay, well, I got to do it. It's fate. I love how you, you know, someone who's written written the most about the sport we all know and love decides you know what i i need to find a race so i'm just going to google it rather than you know rather than knowing what what what, what he what you should do. i i i think that's i think that's lovely that's quite comforting so given given where you are now having had this sort of as you talk about this second chance and use the the water healing you i guess because you knew 
how the, you knew how to use the water in the ocean to heal you along that process. So what does open water swimming mean to you now as scar winner, um, you know, heart attack survivor compared to, uh, compared to what it used to mean to you? And how has that, how has it changed from say the kid uh, racing with mum and dad to where you are now having, can you chart that journey? Oh, uh, the journey is, is basically two chapters. First chapter where, again, I was a child, teenager, young adult, middle-aged adult, enjoying the ocean. I didn't have, I, I, I just enjoyed it. I traveled, I wrote, um, I observed people, I paddled, I kayaked, I, I helped officiate, I pulled the chairs and tables, put up tents. I did everything in the, in the sport as a volunteer, as someone who loves the sport. Then I had the heart attack. Now, um, swimming again, now I know that every single day that I'm out there in the ocean, the lake, wherever I am, that could be my last day. It could be my last opportunity to swim. Now, in reality, that chances are quite low, but because of my experience with that unexpected heart attack, a wholly unexpected heart attack, there is two, there are two chapters. In the first chapter, I was very grateful. I enjoyed swimming, et cetera. The second chapter is a whole nother realm of experience because I know, I vividly remember waking up in the hospital and understanding that I had a second chance. Mm -hmm. That could happen tomorrow. It could happen a year from now. It can happen 20 years from now. So every single time I walk down to the ocean, I, I realize that this could be my last opportunity and the amount of enjoyment that I get is much more profound. I wouldn't say it's more, it's just much more profound. I mean, it, it really, again, going back to what I said in the earlier part of this podcast, is it's really baked into my soul. And I appreciate uh, very much the opportunity to live close to the ocean. When you say more profound, is that, do, you, do you feel like it's become more, more present? Is that, is that a word that crops up for you at all? It uh, not only is it present, it's in a way uh, deeper, uh, deeper in that, you know, the um, it's sort of like if I go to the uh, bakery and I buy myself a piece of chocolate cake, I come back home by myself and I eat that chocolate cake. Chocolate's great, family and friends. And it's my birthday, let's say, and I have that same chocolate cake. The cake itself is the same. The, the swim that I did in the first chapter of my life, in the second chapter of life, it's the same swim. But that chocolate cake, that second chapter swimming, means much more to me. It, it is, it is the, the, the appreciation, um, the, uh, the thankfulness um, is, would I say, more profound, deeper, more meaningful. That, that's what I mean if, if I'm being... No, it makes, uh, that, that makes complete sense. Now. I mean, that makes complete sense. It's uh, it's something that a lot of a lot of the guests have touched on this this idea of of the more we swim, the more present we become, uh, and that for me ties in nicely with when you're training as a marathon swimmer. You know, you're training your mind more than you're training your body because you, once you overcome the the sheer amount of time that you're in the water, it sort of time becomes elastic in that in that way, yeah. which is nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and. I love that comment you just made about time and its elasticity. 
because I was just thinking about this the other day, whereas if I'm swimming um, and it's dark, if I'm swimming in a place where I'm not familiar with, it seems to me that time has slowed down. So it, it literally, I can swim a kilometer, but psychologically, that kilometer, if, it, if I'm in a familiar body of water and the sun is out, let's say it takes me 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Let's say I'm in the dark in an unfamiliar place. It's still taking me 20 minutes, but psychologically, that 20 minutes seems like it's stretched out to 40 <laughs> minutes, to 60 yeah. minutes. Yeah, I don't have that experience on dry land. Yeah. That experience that I have when, when the water's rough, when the currents are coming against me, time seems to slow. Now, what's really interesting is when I finally get through that, I'll call it the slow dimension swimming, and I get out of the water, I'm really happy that I experienced that, that slowing down of my, uh, my senses, um, that, that, that this 20-minute swim felt like psychologically a 40-minute swim. I got double my money's worth. <laughs> it's so interesting you say that because for, for me, time, time does both. Like time sort of stands still. And in that, in that present moment, it feels like it's taken forever, but actually it feels like it's taken a, a millisecond at the same time. It's that weird paradox for me. Yes. Uh, and I, I love that about being, about being in the open water, but I only get that feeling when I'm quite fit because my brain is, 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 in, is in tune with uh, the distances I might be swimming. And so it just kicks into that flow state. Uh, that, you said it much more eloquently than I did. Oh, I don't think so. I appreciate your your description. I don't think so. I don't think so. So you you mentioned earlier that you you don't get scared in the open water, but for me, open water swimming because because of its uncontrollable nature, there is a bit like surfing. There is an element of fear factor there for me, which uh, may be why some people find it so addictive. But is is there ever a moment where you know the heckles on your back have gone up or something's happened in the water during a swim? rather than in the surf, let's say, that has made you have pause for thought? Uh, absolutely. When a shark enters the, the equation. <laughs> uh, absolutely. It, uh, I've, seen, I've seen it in Hawaii. I've seen it in California. Um, I've seen it in Mexico. Um, when though, you know, everybody said, okay, just punch the shark in the nose. There's no way. There's no way I can be thinking about that. All I'm thinking at this point is, how can I get out of the water as fast as I can, because I am very uncomfortable. Now, it turns out in all the cases of my own personal shark encounters, and they haven't been close, they've been far away. I've either been in very deep water or I've seen their fin far away. Um, it didn't matter to me whether they were a meter away or a hundred meters away. It really, really spooked me. Um, all In all cases, I went a beeline to shore. There was, I just, I'm, I, you know, I know on, on the surface, they're there, um, or on, in the depths, they're there, uh, certainly here in Southern California, um, and certainly in Hawaii, also in Mexico. I know they're there, um, but I don't want to see them. Um, dolphins, okay. Um, turtles, whales, uh, you name it, that's okay. 
uh, sharks, um, maybe because, you know, the Jaws, the movie came out in 1976 and I was what, uh, 14, 15 years old at the time. Um, that may have been an impact, but really, um, that's the time when I wish I was not in the water when a shark is in the nearby vicinity. Well, I think, I think that's probably an opinion most of us share. Um, yeah, you're told to punch it on the nose, but you know, why, how are you going to have the wherewithal to do that with a creature that's designed to be in the water? Um, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased you said that because, uh, when you say, you know, you don't get scared by anything in the water, for me, that I always think, well, hang on, what if, uh, you know, what if you suddenly saw a great white underneath you? Um, and I, I keep mentioning my friend Tim, you know, he says, he says, ah, it's all right, mate, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just swim in the other direction. I'm like, well, how can you, you can't do that. You know, you've, you've, you've got to get out. You've got to get out. Oh, I yeah. Love it. I, yeah. I think, I think because I've seen them, uh, uh, and again, my mind, not necessarily, perhaps not Tim. I wish I had the mind. You know, my my mind immediately goes to danger and an attack. Mm. That's that's the the, mm. the first thought I have is that's what's going to happen. Mm. The second thought is, wait a second, I got to calm down. I can't go sprinting off and kicking my legs and thrashing my my arms. I need to control my breath and I need to, but I do need to get to shore as quickly as possible. <laughs> and um it, it for me again danger risks i can mitigate but this is that uncontrollable uh, part not only uncontrollable i you know the sharks are around but that uncontrollable what i have that first instinct that you have where you literally are much lower than that apex predator oh, in God the you. animal kingdom god yeah oh well i touch wood so far in my open water experience as a swimmer I've, I've never come across one i've seen a few diving but i think that's that's enough for me so someone once said to me always remember that the water wants you which uh is uh is a, always been a lovely mantra for me when i'm in the pool and i'm you know i'm i'm doing a very uncomfortable set you know trying to be comfortable being uncomfortable all those all those things that we've all talked about but is there um is there a particular swim that uh, if you were omnipotent, you could recreate to sort of have the water in its sort of perfect state where you feel like there is there is harmony. It, it might be an imagined reality. It might be a swim you've you've already done. I don't know. is there is there something that you could that you could paint a picture for us about? Yes, there was a, a swim in northern Japan. It's called the Tsuguru uh, Channel. And uh, it sits, uh, between the main island of Japan and Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan. And beeline, it's only 19 and a half kilometers. Um, so it's not that far, uh, you know, uh, a little over half the English Channel. So the, the water flows from the east to the west. And then basically it's a river that flows through the channel. And um, I got all this data and all this information from the Japanese engineers who had uh, built the, the equivalent of the Japanese channel under these uh, mm -hmm. channel. And uh, it was very much like the, the eclipse. It was, they said, Steve, you know what? Of all the years and decades that we've been actually planning this, we've been charting the, um, uh, the lack of, of uh, or the lack of water equality from the Sea of Japan and Pacific Ocean. But, 
on this one particular day, uh, July 29th or uh, uh, thereabouts in 1989, they said, that's one of the few times in history that we know that the, the body of water is equal. That's the day to swim. And on that particular day, everything came into, into place. Um, uh, instead of going very much like an English channel swim, you know, you sort of sweep and you do this S curve. It was a straight line from one island to the other. And that really, things just all clicked on that um, uh, swim. It was uh, it was a wonderful experience, and um, you know I, I never felt uh, success in a swim like I did with that one. Oh, that's amazing! And I I guess I guess with something like that, that moment is so perfect. It's a bit like a bit like when a surfer surfs uh, surfs a wave. That moment is so unique, and with with you finding that perfect day where the swim was going to be possible, must have made it even more special. Wow! Yes. Yeah, so it was it was actually quite nice. Um, <laughs> the only thing that I remember uh, was was not to plan was the they had a, a Japanese television crew actually film this, and uh, it was a little bit you know seas are never totally calm. There's always this rising and falling of the sea, and the cameraman who was responsible for holding the camera up and down, <laughs> he actually vomited and he got seasick. So uh, they had another cameraman actually hold that. And, and I, I saw him vomit. Oh, and, um, you know, that when I see somebody else vomit, that's what I feel like doing. And I just saw that. Um, and it was, uh, we swam at night. And I just saw this projectile of stuff come out from him. And, and uh, I ended up laughing, but I felt a little queasy for that moment or that yeah. minute or two after that. Yeah, that's a bit. If if there was any bioluminescence, that'd be a, a shock, a shock to the bioluminescence. Um, so, um, my last question, which I actually really want to segue into some of the katsu band training that that the, the recovery that you do. I talked to John, your your lovely colleague, John Doolittle, who I interviewed on the podcast about katsu, yeah. um, and uh, and I I bring it up again because you talked about using the katsu bands all through all through Scar. So my, the question actually is, when, where was your last swim and how was it? Um, and if did you use, are you continuing to use your bands as recovery? Yes. So um, Katsu is a, a company that John and I work, work at. And uh, it's, a, it's truly the ideal form of recovery for anybody, whether they're a marathon runner, a triathlete, or a marathon swimmer. Um, the individuals who I've introduced Katsu to use it uh, quite well. And basically, you put these bands, they're inflatable on your arms or your legs, and um, they inflate very similar to a blood pressure cuff, except the pressure is much, much more gentle. What it effectively does is it pulls the blood in your limbs. So whether if you have it on your arms, your, your forearm, your bicep, your tricep gets gets engorge with blood for 30 seconds and then it's released for five seconds so 30 seconds on five seconds off when the blood pools in your limb for 30 seconds and then the bands release it's basically a dam flowing out so all of that lactate all of the metabolic waste 
that you built up during a long swim or a training swim or a long run or a long bike, et cetera, gets whooshed out. And the, the trick in recovery is really getting rid of that metabolic waste that's built up in, in your muscle uh, groups. And so John, myself, and others um, use katsu after every workout, after every competition. And literally, it is, I, I wouldn't say it's a magic thing, but it feels magical because I, again, in SCAR, after each day, I would do more or less a half an hour to 45 downtime. That accumulated uh, physiological stress was stopped each day. And that's what we use Katsu for. Fantastic. So where was your last swim and how was it? Well, this morning I did, uh, I did about 11, th- I did about 11 kilometers in a pool. Wow. And, uh, what I do is, uh, on the, on, after I swim, I put on the bands on my arms. Um, uh, I, I'm largely a upper body, a swimmer. I do, I do kick, but, um, I sometimes use it on my legs. Uh, let's say if I have a, a particular strenuous uh, workout today, I would just sort of, it was Friday and I was just enjoying the water and and I did it after after about, uh, I would say about today was about 40 minutes of, of katsu recovery. Wow. And so you, 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 you smashed out 11K today. Are you planning, are you planning another swim? Is there something on the horizon? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to return to SCAR. Um, I did. I I didn't think I was going to return to Scar, but it was such an enjoyable experience, and I, I just want to. I just want to relive it. Relive it. Oh wow! It's it. That's that's amazing. And have you got aspirations to swim it any faster, or is it not? Is it does it not sit in your head in that way? Is it just something that you're going to swim and see what happens? Um, on one side of me, I'm going to just just you know, like every marathon swim, like every channel swim the first goal should be just to finish, <laughs> you know, just get it done. Um, secondly, if you want to, if you're have any kind of competitive edge, you want to do it faster than, than otherwise. And then if you're a really uh, uh, top-notch competitor, you always want to win a race. Now uh, this year, there'll be lots of young people, lots of, um, uh, people who will be half my age and younger. And so I just want to see how close I can get to those people. That would be, that's going to be enjoyable for me. Uh, I don't have any illusions of, of, um, uh, defending my title. I, I, I really just want to enjoy the experience. I've done it. I've done it once. I just want to see if I can replicate the joy that I had last year. Fantastic. Well, that's lovely to hear. Uh, and it's nice that you're returning, you know, you're, 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 you're returning to, the Google swim, you know, <laughs> it's taken yes, such yes. a hold on you. And maybe one day, uh, maybe one day I'll join you. Uh, oh, please um, do. I'd love that. In the meantime, I'm, I'm saving up for some, I am saving up for some katsu bands, uh, okay. because they, they look, they look, they look pretty cool. And hearing you talk about them just makes me, makes me want to, you know, I'm swimmers don't have many gadgets, right? And so when, <sighs> a, when, when a gadget is, when a gadget is floated in front of your face, it's like, right. Okay. That's, that's that's definitely something I can use. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna move heaven and earth this Christmas to see if I can if Father Christmas can try and bring me some katsu bands. <laughs> I, I consider my katsu recovery tool as essential to my swimming as I do my goggles. That's wow. literally how I view it now. Wow. Okay. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. 
Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to invest. Stephen, I can't thank you enough for, for the time you've taken to come on, come on the podcast. Um, and I know our listeners are going to love that. So thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure. There was one thing I did want to clarify and it, you did call me, you complimented me in the beginning of this uh, podcast. And, and I, all I do is I compile, I write about swimmers, uh, all of our colleagues. Um, and I think that's very, very important. I started writing back in the late seventies and continued eighties, nineties in this century. And, and obviously before the internet writing in a magazine and for newspapers, et cetera, was the only way that people knew about open water swimming. And so uh, I didn't start the sport. I, I, I'm just one of the people who actually helped compile um, the wonderful exploits, the personalities, the characters who really infuse this sport with um, all the wonderfulness that it brings to our planet. Yeah. Well, here, here, and that was that was very eloquently put. <laughs> to yeah. to 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 echo your compliment to me about about speaking, well, not that eloquently, but I thought that was that's beautifully put. And and you know, our sport will be a lot poorer without you. So I thank you so much for your for your time uh, over the years and and for coming on the show. I feel very honoured. Thank you. My pleasure. Truly, my pleasure. Thank you again, Stephen, for taking the time to talk to me. I so enjoyed that. I mean, he seems to have this ability to be able to pull significant names out of thin air and dates, which is a skill I wish I had. It was really amazing to talk to him, so thank you. Thank you also to all of you for listening, and I will be back next week with another episode, episode four. So until then, happy swimming. <laughs>